Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Now, our guest today is somebody who I've admired for a long time and for a bunch of different reasons. Jeremy Bloom made the U.S. national ski team when he was just 15 years old. Then he became a three-time world champion mogul skier, a two-time Olympian, and an 11-time World Cup gold medalist. And if that wasn't enough, Jeremy was also a passionate football player who then became an All-American football player at the University of Colorado Boulder, and then went on to be drafted into the NFL by the Philadelphia Eagles. And no part of me thinks that we will ever again see someone become both a world champion skier and be drafted into the NFL. Jeremy was the first to do it. I think he's going to be the only one to ever do that. And given his utterly unique and busy athletic background, these days it is probably not that much of a surprise that Jeremy still likes to keep a lot on his plate. We'll touch on some of that in our conversation here, but our main topic today is the relationship of the pursuit of athletic excellence and how that relates to our own happiness and how our brains really don't actually care whether or not we are a world champion. Issues of brain health can and do affect us all. And the occasion for the exploration of these topics with Jeremy is the new HBO film called The Weight of Gold, which I found to be an eye-opening and alarming and extremely important film, and it's one that I think that every single person in our Blister community needs to see. Now, Jeremy appears in this film and was also an executive producer of the film, and for all of the things that I admire about Jeremy, his work in getting this film made and getting it brought to light is definitely near the top of the list. And we have included a link to the trailer of the film in the show notes of this episode, so check it out or just go see it because I'd like you to consider this a must-watch. And with that, let's go ahead and get to the conversation that I had last week with Jeremy Bloom. Well, Jeremy, how are you today and where are you today? Yeah, so currently living in Boulder, Colorado, where I went to school, found my way back here via Pittsburgh, via Philadelphia, a uh, little trip down NFL lane there. Um, but uh, yeah, found my way back to Colorado. And, you know, like everybody else, um, I'm staying home a lot. I'm you know, in front of a computer a lot, on Zoom a lot, doing calls quite a bit. Uh, not getting on a lot of airplanes or seeing a lot of people, but uh, yeah, adjusting to the new reality. So speaking of this new reality, give us a bit of an overview of what a typical day looks like for you these days in terms of how you're spending your time or what you're working on, if there even is anything like a quote unquote typical day right now. There, there really isn't a typical day in my life because I'm involved in a lot of different things that I'm passionate about. I would say my kind of full-time job is the, the CEO of a marketing software company called Integrate that I founded 10 years ago. 
that takes up most of my kind of nine to five, if you will, you know, running that business where we're now uh, over 300 people and buying companies. It's a really fun stage to be in. I'll take this over kind of two guys in a basement, you know, trying to figure it out any day. But uh, so that's my, you know, nine to five. And then outside of that, I, I stay very involved in athletics. I serve on the board of directors for the U.S. ski team, U.S. snowboard team, and I enjoy my, my role there quite a bit. I work with the United States Olympic Committee on different initiatives. I was an executive producer, of course, on the way to gold, which I think we're going to talk uh, about here on the podcast today. And and then usually, you know, in college football, I, I do TV inside the Pac-12, so I get to call games and go to go to various college football venues on a Saturday and talk about the game. I don't think that's going to happen this year, although it, uh, it possibly could, but unlikely. So yeah, I'm kind of, you know, and, and I have Wish of a Lifetime, which is my nonprofit. We grant lifelong wishes to 80, 90, and 100-year-old people. So that's kind of my world in a nutshell. And yeah, I, I enjoy working on all of the various projects. Dude, it's, you've got a lot going on. Oh, and my wife's pregnant, so <laughs> so we're having our first in January. So yeah, my wife, right? And she's pregnant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. By the way, we're running back to back U.S. Ski Hall of Famers here. I was literally just a couple of days ago hanging out on the south side of Chicago with Art Clay who's one of the co-founders of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. So we went to. 83-year-old Art on the south side of Chicago to you. And I think you were inducted in, I think, 2013. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. Back-to-back Hall of Famers here. Hey, man, if you're a skier, we share a commonality no matter what age, background, you know, like if you're a skier, you're a skier, you get it. You know, it's a a fraternity or, you know, brotherhood, however you want to describe it. We are going to be talking about this new film on HBO. The film is called The Weight of Gold. It really is something else. And I'm excited to talk with you about it. But I figured before we get there, I think it would make a lot of sense to get a bit of a running start by delving a little bit more into your kind of incredible backstory here. As you said, you are an executive producer of the film. You are also in the film. People know that you... uh, did this kind of dual football and skiing thing, but I don't think I actually know which was sort of the first love, skiing or football, or if it was actually something else. <laughs> yeah, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? <laughs> I, I think probably from, well, I, I know for sure because John Elway was drafted in 1982. It's the year that I was born, and I was a diehard Broncos football fan from birth. I mean, my dad loved the games. And so we would watch them together. And I wanted to be John Elway from as long as I can remember. So I think football was the first dream of mine to make it to the NFL. I wanted to be John Elway. And skiing was like a little was was a hobby that, you know, my family did on the weekends until I saw the Olympics when I was 10. When I, there was this defining moment. It was the 1992 Winter Olympics. And I saw a guy named Edgar Grosperon win an Olympic gold medal in freestyle skiing in his hometown of Teen France. And it was at that day, that moment, you know, that location, I said, I want to ski in the Olympics and I want to be drafted into the NFL. And I'm going to dedicate my life and my existence 
at the age of 10 to doing that. And my parents said, go for it, man. You know, you can do it if you put your mind to it. So put my head down and just started going. So had you been doing any mogul skiing prior to watching this Olympics or like when did bump skiing start for you? Oh yeah. My dad loved bump skiing. You know, as soon as we could get off the greens and blues, you know, so I was probably, I don't know, six or seven, we were on the, the black diamonds all day just pounding bumps. And like he, you know, my, my dad just loved to, to ski the bumps. And so we were a bump skiing family from pretty much the beginning. You mentioned Elway and you mentioned who is the skier? Edgar Garros Baron. He's a Frenchman and he won the Olympic gold medal in teens France in uh, the 1992 Olympics. Yeah. So I guess my question is, did you have like a favorite skier growing up or like you just saw this moment and that was like, that was it for you? I, I was just a bump skier because of the family bump skis, you know, like I didn't think of it. Like I didn't think of the Olympics. I didn't know who Edgar was at the time. Uh, but it just clicked for me. I'm like, Oh yeah, that thing I do on the weekends, like this guy's doing it on the biggest stage in the world and just won this Olympic gold medal. Hey, that's what I want to do. Might as well do something with this kind of weekend passion. So this is what you're thinking as a 10 year old. And then unbelievable to me, five years later, you get a call from the U.S. national team and they're like, we want you. Talk about those five years from being 10 years old and saying, I'm going to ski in the Olympics and I want to get drafted in the NFL. Five years later, you're on the U.S. national team. Yeah, nobody's really put it that I haven't really thought of it in that time horizon as, you, as you've described it. And it does seem pretty quick, but a lot happens between the ages of 10 and 15. You know, that's a, you know, the mind and the body develops quite a bit. But yeah, I remember like it was yesterday. I got, a, I got a call from the United States ski team saying that, Jeremy, you have qualified for the U.S. ski team. We'll see you in Park City uh, at our first camp. And at that point in time, my life was made. Like I, I didn't have to do, like I just, I made the U.S. ski team. I got the jacket. I, it was, it was an out-of-body experience making the team. That happens when you're 15. Talk a little bit about like the football stuff. You already said at 10, you're like, I'm going to get drafted into the NFL. You know, I've heard you also talk about people kind of expected you to become this exceptional skier. You kind of had the thing about you're being told you're probably too small to play football. But when did you start having a lot of confidence on a football field? Or were you always kind of hearing the doubters? I always heard the doubters, but I always used those doubters as kind of, you know, fuel for the fire, so to say. And I would always train harder. I would always work longer. I always knew because there was so much doubt that I had to outwork the guy next to me. I, I had to put in more hours. And so that helped drive me a lot. And, you know, I always had confidence in myself. I was always really fast at, at every level, at college, high school, and at the pros, I was the fastest guy on the team. So I knew that, yeah, maybe I was the, the smallest and, you know, I'd have to make up for that deficiency in, you know, in other ways. That being said, I had no idea if I would ever get a chance to play college football or let alone get drafted into the NFL. And you're right. Like, you know, my, you know, ma making the USC team at 15, you know, creates an expectation that, Hey, you're pretty good. You're pretty young. You could make it to the Olympics, but you need to focus 100% of your time on this sport and nothing else. And I just didn't want to do that. It was funny thinking about two sport athletes. I went from being that football player and discovering 
skiing really only after I was done playing football. So I was just like watching you and it was like, this was impossible. Like, I mean, literally no one else has done this. At least to my knowledge, I don't know anybody else who's been on an Olympic ski team and also played in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, well, if you think about the kinesiology of sports or the, the movement of sports and the muscles that you use, there's, there's more common dual sport athletes in things like, you know, football and baseball. You're using very similar muscle groups to, to do the things that you're doing. And skiing and football is not that way, you know, and in one sport, you're using a lot of ankle flexibility and strength to make people miss, to make jukes, to come out of breaks. And in skiing, you literally have a cast on your foot. (laughs) So you're, you know, you're using little muscle, but you're not developing those strengths. And so, you know, that was one of the big challenges of being a dual sport athlete in, in two sports that really use very different muscle groups. But I approached that as, you know, I just had to work on different things depending on what time of the year it was to get ready for, for each sport. I mean, as a elite, elite bump skier and as a wide receiver, I mean, certainly fast twitch is a shared thing, but it seems like you're right. I mean, the differences maybe start to end there. But for you, it really feels like you were doing this without a kind of blueprint or role model, right? Like two sport athletes. Deion Sanders was sure a big deal. Bo Jackson was sure a big deal. But right, these are both football, baseball. I guess I'm just curious when you're thinking about that, it's like, man, I'm totally in uncharted territory here. Talk a little bit about that. You know, I didn't really think about it that way at the, at the time. Those were just the two things I loved to do. And I was, you know, I had such blinders on, you know, I, I wanted to get better every single day. I wanted to outwork every single person, all my competitors. I've always been very driven at a young age. I'm the youngest of three. So I grew up in a world where I lost at everything. My <laughs> brother beat me at everything. My sister beat me at everything. So like, I just had a drive to win at something. And, you know, so th- those were just the two things I did. And, you know, it wasn't until uh, a lot later that I found out or realized that, you know, I'm the only athlete in history to get drafted in the NFL and also, you know, ski in the Olympics, which is a, you know, a cool I guess a cool asterisk to have on your Wikipedia or whatever, but it just, you know, it's not like, it's not like it's that meaningful. Right. And, and, and so it's just, those were just the two things that I love to do. Well, I'd say it's meaningful if you happen to love football and you happen to love skiing, we really actually might never see this done again, which is also kind of wild to think about. I get asked the question sometimes, Hey, if you could go back and just do one sport, and maybe have a little bit more success or a lot more success, would you do it? And my genuine answer is no, because the journey that I had in both sports of experiencing the Olympic level at an individual sport, skiing is an individual sport. You're either the best in the world or not. There's no teammates, you know, like you compete against everybody. And then experiencing what I think is the greatest team sport in the world of football and experiencing that at the collegiate level and then into the national football league, those journeys, those experiences, not necessarily the medals or the wins of whatever football game that's less memorable, but those experiences to me are just absolutely priceless. This is going to be taking us now into our conversation about the weight of gold. But before we get there, this is just a selfish question for me. I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about the NFL and what you would say stood out the most to you, like the jump going from the collegiate level to the pro level in football. Like you already said, at every level, you always had speed. 
And a lot of people talk about when they jump from college football to the pros or college basketball to the pros, they talk about the speed of the game is just much quicker. But I'm curious for you, like what stood out the most about this next level? Two things stood out the most. The first is the consistency of the locker room. So in college, you know who's going to be in that locker room every year. Yes, there's going to be seniors that graduate out, but you expect that. And so a new class comes in. Very expected kind of flow of the locker room. In the NFL, there's no predictability of locker room. You come in on a Monday morning and your good buddy next to you, his locker is completely cleaned out and he's off the team. And then there's a new name tag there of some player that just came in. So it really is a revolving locker room, which can create challenges of you know creating things like culture and and connect tissue inside the organization, et cetera. The other thing that, that you highlighted is the speed of the game. But I would clarify that as not the speed of the defensive backs, not the speed of the running backs, not the speed of the wide receivers. Like that to me seemed pretty consistent. It was the speed of the 350 pounders. Like watching a lineman in the NFL go through an agility ladder their feet are as fast as linebackers or defensive backs in college. It, it's, it's really unbelievable to see the big guys and how fast and agile they are and how athletic they are at the, at the NFL level. You don't see that in college. Linebackers and defensive linemen. These guys are in just enormous. And the speed of the linebackers and the power of the linebackers, but then the athleticism and nimbleness of these gigantic defensive linemen, this is so inhuman. <laughs> like this is, it's like aliens came down. I don't get it. It really is. I mean, we, you know, I played for the Philadelphia Eagles when I got drafted. Uh, one of the first guys I saw in the locker room was Brian Dawkins. Now, Brian Dawkins looks like he was created by a computer program. <laughs> He's, he's the guy, remember anatomy class in like eighth grade or whatever? And there's a picture of like the perfect anatomy of a human being. That's Brian Dawkins. <laughs> he actually makes that guy look bad in the book. Like, and I, I'm walking, I'm like, this guy's not even human. And then you just go, you know, down the line and Troy Palomalu is another guy like on the football field. The things that he could do are just, they weren't human. They, they were Superman level. And so you just get a collection of freakish human beings that almost don't seem real, you know, in, in the NFL. And it really is, I think, the hardest professional league to make it in. You don't have guaranteed contracts, so you can't, you know, just sit on. Uh, and it's a revolving door and there's all kinds of great college players every single year coming in. I think it's the most competitive professional sport on our planet. Moving on then to the weight of gold. What is this film and how did you come to be involved in it? So when you think about sports, and I think most people listening probably did some sort of sport in middle school or high school so that we can bring something that we can all relate to. Very rarely do we ever have a coach that says, hey, tell me when you're not feeling well. Tell me when things aren't great. Tell me if you're depressed. Tell me if you have, have anxiety. I'm here for you if you want to listen. Usually coaches don't say those things. And, and so we, we grow up in this athletic environment where we can show no weakness. And every time the level gets higher, it gets more and more important that you're bulletproof, that you never have problems, you never experience depression, you never experience anxiety, that you can overcome things really quickly. They call it a short memory in, in, in the National Football League. And you gotta show coaches you have that if you want 
to have that opportunity or be known as a, as a good athlete. Well, that's not really how life works, right? Because we all have some form of anxiety in our life. We all have some form of depression in our life. We all fall down. We all fail at some point, inevitably. And so, you know, there's this weird dynamic that's created where uh, you can't be yourself. You can't be authentic. So I grew up with a guy named uh, Jarrett Speedy Peterson. He was an aerialist. Those guys that skied into those huge jumps, did three flips, four twists. I mean, the, the sport is insane. A great kid, grew up in Idaho, and we made the ski team around the same age, and we just were great friends. And he came to me one night in Lake Placid, New York, at the Olympic Training Center, and he was just distraught. And he said, hey, man, I got demons inside of me. I'm super depressed. I don't know what to do. I can't get out of this dark hole. And I, I wasn't equipped. I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know how to help him. And he ultimately, well, he won a silver medal at the Vancouver Olympics, and then he took his life a few years after that. When I heard that Speedy took his life, it was really at that point where I said, all right, well, I'm going to dedicate a portion of my life to better educate myself on the topic, to better understand it, and to be a voice of reason and a voice of change to destigmatize mental health. And at the time, Brett Radkin, who's the, the director of The Way to Gold, was interviewing Stephen Holcomb, the Olympic gold medalist bobsledder who also ultimately took his life at Lake Placid at that same Olympic training center by overdosing on a bunch of different, a cocktail of, of drugs. And so Brett came to me because he knew I was passionate about it. This was early on, this was three and a half years ago and said, hey, I'm thinking about this angle for this film. What do you think? I said, I'm all in. I called two of my buddies, Radfeld and Dave Morin, who I knew were uh, passionate about the topic. We raised a bunch of money with two calls and we were off and running. And then from there, I just called a bunch of my friends, uh, you know, Apollo Ono, and we got in touch with Sean White and Sasha Cohen, and everybody, you know, in an authentic way said, I want to talk about my struggles. Yeah, this is, this is a thing that I've struggled with. I want to be vulnerable. I want to be authentic, all in the name and, uh, of trying to destigmatize what mental health is. I like to call it brain health because it's, you know, I think mental health comes with some negative uh, connotations. But the baseline is this. At some certain elevated level, depression and anxiety and brain health issues are the same as cancer, the same as diabetes, the same as heart disease. But as a society, we don't view them that way. We often view them as a weakness of the human being. The, the human being that is depressed is weak. We need whatever you know we, we want to do with that person. But I think the, the sooner that our society realizes that at some elevated level, these are clinical problems and we need to address them just like we do other diseases. We'll make improvements. And we also wanted to show people that no matter how many medals you have in your trophy case, no matter how much money you have and no matter how much fame you have, I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than Michael Phelps at the Olympic level. Brain diseases don't care. They don't care how many medals you have. They don't care how much money you have. They don't care how many people want your autograph. They'll attack anybody and they can attack anybody. And so hopefully that can give some hope to people who might feel depressed and say, well, I'm depressed because I, I didn't get that job or I didn't get that opportunity or I don't have trophies or I don't have money. None of that stuff matters. None of it matters. It's just, just it's, the, it's the human level. So this gets to the heart of the bigger question. I was honestly shocked watching the film just at the absolute level of candor and transparency that the people that you just named were displaying and uh, apparently felt free or you know 
it probably wasn't that comfortable, some of the things they were saying, but it was important enough that everybody was like, this needs to be said and, and we need to say it. But it is really something, I think, on the one hand, when we're talking about brain health, I think there are chemical issues there, right, that can be a factor. And we know this, we acknowledge this, there are drugs to try to deal with some of those strict chemical, say, imbalances that someone might be experiencing. But in addition to that, I think that many of us, certainly growing up in this country, you know, we look at a Jerry Rice, we look at a Michael Jordan, we look at a Michael Phelps. Certainly, I mean, you know, me looking at you coming up and what you were accomplishing, and we just think like, that's it. That person has made it and arrived to be operating at a high level on these stages. That is happiness in and of itself, right? And I want to kind of kind of explore that a bit with you. I think Phelps's story, the winningest Olympian ever, right? When it started coming out, some of the things that he was struggling with, and man, I am psyched on him and how candid he has been and the work that he has been doing on this front. It just, I applaud it so much. But this was such a disconnect. It was like, dude, you literally have everything that so many of us athletes, we grew up and we just thought, that's where we're trying to get. That is the promised land. And I think the stories that you guys were sharing in this film, it's like you kind of all were in the promised land. And turns out that promised land is not an antidote or doesn't save you from dealing with some of these extremely hard issues. How did we get this like picture of like, if I can just get there, I've arrived, I've made it, drop the mic, I'm happy forever. I'd love to try to dive into that. Like, how did we get there? What happened? And why do we need films now like The Weight of Gold to kind of be like a corrective or an antidote to that mindset? Yeah, well, the higher you go, the the further you fall, right? And, you know, we, we all grew up in a media environment that at a young age teaches us to win and make a lot of money. I mean, those are the two things that most of our influences, our, our heroes, our idols did. I mean, very rarely do you have someone says, my hero is the Dalai Lama because he seems really happy. You know, like, or, or fill in the blank. Somebody, my hero is X, Y, or Z person you've never heard, heard of because they're just really happy and content with their life. And I think that that's the way it should be. But the fallacy is in, you know, in, in the Western societies where we, where we were raised is you will be happy if you win a lot, if you make a lot of money, and if lots of people like you and want to be you. And all three of those things, none of them make you happy. I mean, there's been longitudinal studies on happiness that none of those factors come up. I mean, there was, a, there was a study on happiness. I think it was the most comprehensive study on happiness ever, ever done. And, you know, it found that, that money had almost no impact on happiness to a certain level. And that level is food, shelter, and water. So take the average cost to live in whatever city. If you can pay for food, shelter, and water, those three basic necessities, yes, money will make you happy. But beyond that, it had no statistical relevance of happiness. But how many people think if I had more money, I'll be happier. 
most people think, but it's just, it, it's not the case. The other thing that you mentioned that I like to refer to as treadmill goal setting is this notion or idea that if I get there, my life will be complete. Like, as I mentioned to you, like at 15, when I got the call from the United States ski team and they said, you made the ski team. I'm like, my life is complete. And then what do you think I thought to myself waking up the next day? It's not enough. That's not enough. Like, what's the next thing that'll make me happy? Oh, I just need to make it to a World Cup. Oh, I just need to make an Olympic team. Oh, I need an Olympic gold medal. Oh, I need to, you know, get a scholarship to play football. Again, like none none of those things by themselves creates long-term sustainable happiness in life. Yes, episodically, temporarily, do they give you joy? Yeah, this bolt of energy, uh, this euphoria, but it's it's not long-lasting. And for professional athletes, we spend most of our lives defined as the person that does X, Y, or Z sport. I was the football skier. Michael Phelps is a swimmer. Apollo Ono was a speed skater. Sasha Cohen was a figure and, and then you, everybody, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much, you, you reach this point in life where you have to redefine yourself. You have, you have a new identity. And, and oftentimes that transition is really, really difficult for, uh, for athletes. So I want to try to go down this road for a minute. I'm thinking about a bunch of kids coming up right now, and they are playing their respective sport. Let's keep it to athletics for the moment. Or, But frankly, it works if you're trying to be a great violinist or cellist as well. This question of sort of happiness versus greatness or happiness versus success. I was talking recently with Amelia Boone, who is a incredibly accomplished endurance athlete. I think I was saying to Amelia, like, it seems to me that maybe a good thing is these days, I think we're hearing more about like, enjoy the process. I don't know that we were hearing that as much or as regularly, say 10, 20 years ago. And I think that actually is really key. I mean, it sounds cliche, but I like, I think we all need to buy into that, right? Like, are you enjoying your day to day, right? And if you're an athlete trying to make an Olympic team, You've got to be good at enjoying that process, putting in that work, right? And if you are really unhappy in that, it's probably time to do some reevaluation. But Amelia kind of made this point about like, yeah, but she said, sometimes that feels like that's what you say. That's what the losers say. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. People are going to watch this film and they really should. But I still wanted like, how do we help people, kids, a lot of them, pursue excellence. I personally still think, yeah, there's value in being like, become that state champion wrestler, become that, you know, the state champion runner or the world champion, whatever sport. But how do you do that in such a way where you don't end up a kind of emotional disaster? Well, I think the pursuit of greatness is a pursuit worth taking, especially for, for kids. And that's why I love athletics, because I think it prepares you for life, because in life, we're going to lose. In life, we're going to fall down. And, and I think, and working with other people and all, you know, at a young age, I think, so, so the pursuit of greatness is worth pursuing. But from there, you have to determine what your source of motivation is. Is it extrinsic motivation or is it intrinsic motivation? And two very different sources of energy. Extrinsic motivation is I want to become great because I want to be famous. I want to be great because I want people to like me. I want to be great because I want to make a lot of money. I want to be great 
you know, for, for attention. Intrinsic motivation is I want to be great because I want to push myself every single day to be the best fill in the blank that I could ever possibly be. And I'm going to focus on the daily activity, the daily effort, the daily training uh, to get there. I'm going to lionize things like learning, which I, I which I, you know, that's a win. If I learn something, it's going to win. I'm going to celebrate the ups and the downs, and I'm going to think about the whole journey in its totality and not the end result. Because by the way, the end result is a fallacy. There's no end result. It's like the treadmill goal set. You get to the quote end result and there's got to be something new. So there's no end result. So I think it's the way that we teach children how to motivate themselves. I was motivated in a very extrinsic way up until the age of 17. I was taught win, 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 win. I signed, practiced my autograph in third grade more than I did math or something like, like I, I, like that. I wanted to win. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to. And then I read this book. The book's a little out there, but it's called the power of intention by Wayne Dyer. And I got to a chapter. This was in Elk, Colorado, Chile at a US ski team camp at 17. And, um, I got to a chapter. It said, give up your need to win. And really what, yeah, what he was saying is like, Give up your extrinsic motivating factors and do it from an internal place. And it was really a turning point in in my ski career. I went from a no-name skier that didn't win anything to the next year winning more consecutive World Cups than any skier in, in the history of the sport. Not because physically I made such a leap, because mentally I completely reframed what I was looking at, what I was motivated to do and, and how I wanted to go about doing that. So I do think that there's power in, in how we teach children you know, what energy sources they should consume in order to accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish. So you're saying you read that, the let go of winning, and then you started to like really dial it up in terms of your results? I'll give you an anecdote. The year before I was in a World Cup in France and I had a teammate that I didn't like and he was in first place and I was the last skier to ski. So he's either winning the, the World Cup um, I didn't want that to happen, <laughs> you know, or, or I got to beat him. And it messed with me so much because I wanted to beat him. I didn't want him to win all these ex extrinsic things. I crashed on the top air. I forgot how to ski. It was a paralyzing experience. And that was kind of the backdrop to me to, to evolve my mental capacity to deal with these types of things. So it became less about beating X, Y, or Z or beating this person and more about the inward journey of myself. And yeah, that, you know, that next year, I, I did a lot of mental work that year. And Wayne Dyer, you know, thanks to, to the power of intention, helped me see it at a young age. And then, yeah, that next year, I, you know, I was just, um, it was hard for me to lose. I just was skiing at my best, but the winning didn't matter. It didn't matter as much. I didn't care. Like people say, congrats on winning. I'm like, don't tell me congrats on winning. Tell me congrats that I skied my best. Cause that was my goal. That's it. I just wanted to do my run, ski my best. And I was so locked in there that it was a very healthy way to be competitive. Growing up, Jerry Rice was God to me. I was like this, arguably the greatest wide receiver still ever. And I remember reading an interview with him and he said that he was absolutely terrified of failure. He's like, I did not get any enjoyment out of winning. It was all, every bit of success I had was because I was terrified of failing 
and the feeling that would result from that. In this film, The Weight of Gold, Apollo Ono, I mean, he says, like the quote is in the film, I was mostly driven by fear of failure. I got to say, I think growing up, you kind of said this, like that's kind of where you were up until you were like 17. You know, people used to ask that question, like, do you like winning more than you hate losing? Or do you hate losing more than you like love winning? And I was definitely on the side of like, I hate losing, right? Winning is the thing you're supposed to do. So when that happened, it didn't really leave you with any great feeling. It's like, well, mission accomplished or check that box. Losing was devastating. First of all, in life, take responsibility. Like I'll take the blame for that. But I do kind of wish like if I'd had a coach or two, Maybe talking a bit differently about like you, you said it yourself, right? Like when you lose, like, well, what did you just learn? Gain from that rather than just sit there in a pile of failure. I watch Steph Curry a lot and I love Steph Curry. And when every time I watch Steph Curry on a basketball court, I'm like, that dude just enjoys winning. And he doesn't like, he's trying to win and he does it a lot. But he doesn't seem like the sort that is devastated when they come up short on a basketball court. It looks like he has this proper orientation to like wins and losses. I think most great athletes who are at the top of their game and are used to winning, winning is not joyous. It's a relief. It's a relief. And I think it's a terrible way to go through life. And I think it's a terrible way to spend your short period as a professional athlete because we all, it's short for all of us. And I think what you described, I don't know Steph Curry either, but I can relate to what you're saying. It resonates just from watching him. He doesn't seem like a guy that gets too down when they lose or too high when they win. He's kind of right in the middle. I think he's enjoying his life. I think he's enjoying his career. He's obviously having a lot of success. But yeah, I mean, you know, if if I had my choice as an athlete, that's how I would choose to be. But like you, I didn't want to lose. I mean, I, you know, when I was at the top of my game in, in skiing, you know, winning was more of a relief for me. Okay, yeah, I got I got the job done and let's go to the next week and next challenge instead of, you know, really enjoying the ride. I don't know if you'll will ever find anyone who enjoys losing. Like if you can find enjoyment in losing, you're a, an exceptional you're, you're an enlightened human being. But I do think that there are very constructive ways to leverage the inevitable setbacks and failures in all of our lives in order to ultimately accomplish our goals. And there's a couple people that come to mind who are exceptional at that. You mentioned one of them, Michael Jordan. He was cut twice from his varsity basketball team in high school. How many athletes today going to school would continue to play basketball? Guys like Steve Jobs, the entrepreneur who started Apple, he was fired from Apple. He went on to go start Pixar. <laughs> like he didn't need to start Pixar and then he went back to Apple. And, and then Walt Disney was fired for a quote, lack of imagination before he started Disney. So, you know, all these people who have done exceptional things in their life have handled adversity in a constructive way. They've allowed it to recalibrate their compass to success. They haven't personalized it too much. And they've just got up and kept moving. And if you were to ask me, like, with all the things that I've seen in my life, from football and skiing to entrepreneurism to whatever, I would say the key to life, and it's real simple, just keep moving. Just keep moving. Just keep taking steps forward. 
And, and oftentimes it can be hard and paralyzing and fear can get in our way. Put your head, just put our heads down and just keep moving. Just keep moving. Coming back to the weight of gold, one of the things that, you know, Apollo Ono talks about this, Sasha Cohen, Michael Phelps, they all talk about this kind of hyper focus and like in a way their worlds kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller and just about this one very singular thing that happened every four years, right, at the Olympics. But I look at your life and background and like while you were competing at these high levels, first of all, as we said, you kind of had both skiing and football. You know, you talked about at 17, you found this different orientation to like wins and losses. But in some ways, I kind of look at your life and what you've done and gone on to do in terms of entrepreneurship and philanthropy and the rest. That strikes me as a pretty good blueprint, right? Like you kind of managed to avoid that hyper narrowing of like everything you are going to be defined as as a person is coming down to just this literally this one race, this one lap. I mean, you've you've played in that world and excelled in that world and had some disappointments in that world. You always kind of, it seems like to me, had a bit of a broader world than that. Does that seem right or not? I've always, yeah, I've always believed in diversification, you know, of, of, of not putting all the chips on one thing. And I think part of that is just the way that I was raised and the influences that I had in my life. My, my parents, they never told me, Jeremy, you have to just do skiing. You have, they were always like, hey, you do what you think is, is right. And I, I would somewhat describe myself as a, a life experience enthusiast. I just want to experience it all. You know, we're not on this planet for long. You know, we're all, you know, getting on that plane to go wherever next. Some of us have an earlier flight than others, but like we have a short period of time to experience things, to, to test things, to fail at things, to succeed at things, to learn things. And that's the thing I love most about life is the experimentation of new things and new, cha uh, new challenges and trying to, to get as much as you can. My dad always likes to tell me when your time is up, my time is up, uh, the gas tank's going to be empty. That's a good goal. That's a good goal for all of us. Like we should leave with the with an empty tank. And life shouldn't end the day that you're done with high school sports or college sports or No way. That's just beginning. Your life's just beginning. I was just hanging out in Chicago with a friend of mine from high school and his kid is now a running back at Columbia University. I was so impressed talking to this kid. He's talking about life after football. And he's talking about grad school and he's talking about like, I really want to go to school in London. And I was like, man, I was not talking that way. That kind of was the end of the cliff. Like whenever, whenever football was done and basketball was done, I guess I'm just in the abyss now. I am a bit optimistic, I guess, that certainly it seems like we have seen a lot of pros. LeBron James, right? He's starting his own media company. But it does seem to me maybe that some of the people that we are putting on kind of these athletic pedestals, they are kind of modeling this life after the sport in a way that I don't think was as common, you know, when you and I were coming up. You think that's right? I, I do. I think the generational data that we're seeing is really interesting. 
I just made the cutoff to be a millennial, so 1982. So I'm a millennial, but I'm an old millennial. But millennials, and we're hiring a lot of millennials. Millennials are a lot different than the generation in front of them. And they're different because, by and large, this generation values quality of life. So not everybody, you know, you can't you know, generalize everybody. But by and large, this generation will pick quality of life over a higher paying job where they feel like they're not going to have a quality of life. They want freedom. They want unlimited days off. They want to be able to travel. They want to be able to work remotely. They want to be able to give back. And so I think they have the right priorities. I think that's encouraging uh, to our conversation of really kind of enjoying the journey of life and not just the end result. And then you have the, the Gen Z's who appear to be one of the most philanthropic generations that we've had. I mean, a generation that wants to volunteer, that wants to start nonprofits, that wants to create a legacy for not just themselves, but to help people in the world. So I think these are really good signs and signals of where our world is heading. And, you know, for all the bad things that people want to say about the young people in in our country, I'm actually really optimistic. And I think they're going to do some incredible things. Again, coming back to the weight of gold and coming back to once people see the film, almost starts to feel like this bit of an epidemic of like incredibly high level performers struggling mightily with feelings of failure and self-doubt and disappointment and the rest. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of ways out there to address this or deal with this. Like, I really think this film is going to open a lot of eyes and hopefully hit the accelerator, you know, in terms of caring for Olympic athletes, but also just frankly, anybody. But what are you seeing specifically on the issue of high achieving Olympic athletes? What's happening to kind of help those individuals who maybe right now are struggling in their own way? I think it's a subject and a topic that we're all learning together. And I think we're really early in our understanding, our human understanding of brain health conditions, of of which we describe in the weight of gold. And I think there's a lot of great people who are working on it. Sarah Hirschland is one of them, the, the chief executive officer at the United States Olympic Committee, um, who admits, you know, maybe in the past, the, the USOC has, has turned a cold shoulder to this topic. I don't think intentionally but just due for a lack of, of awareness um, to, to how severe the issue is. But they've recently created an independent task force to, to tackle this issue and create resources and people for, for folks to talk to at the Olympic level that are not coaches, that are not connected to making decisions on who goes to the Olympics. So I think that's a step in the right direction. And all the NGBs, I mean, I serve on the board at the US ski team. We're talking about ways to better support athletes. But, but this topic is not only obviously focus on athletes. It's it, This is a human problem. But our hope with Way to Gold is really to show folks who are struggling that it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how famous you are. Brain health doesn't care that you are not alone. Even the most successful people on our planet go through difficult times and struggles. And I think that commonality and that normalization will help people will help normalize what's going on. And I hope that it encourages them to not think of themselves as weak, not think of themselves as the problem, and 
ask for some help and take some steps to talk to some people, to open up, to share things that they've never shared with other people. And I think that's, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. There's a wonderful line. I think it, I don't remember for sure who said it, but I think it was Apollo Ono who said, if I tweak a knee or an ankle, I'm going to go have access to some of the top you know, surgeons, physical therapists, et cetera, to address that problem. But if I'm having, to use your term, kind of a brain issue, or I'm just struggling with some issue in my life, it kind of was the opposite of that. And there weren't these same high level resources to deal with that. And, you know, that was a pretty striking comment. And it is exciting to imagine this world where we have learned so much about physical fitness. And I feel like we know a lot more than we did 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And I actually am hopeful and optimistic as we, one, as a culture, I think, just become more accepting of somebody being like, hey, man, I'm kind of struggling. And it's kind of the same as being like, hey, man, I think I tweaked my meniscus. If we come to have a better more charitable understanding of the brain health issues, we are actually going to be seeing a lot of people in a much better space and struggling less than they have been. And, and that, I think, is actually really encouraging. So Apollo Ono said that in the film. I thought it was an excellent point. I, I, he's so right about that. I mean, you twist your ankle, you're going to have five of the best doctors in, in, on the planet looking at your ankle and fixing your ankle. But I think that goes to show our maturity and understanding, you know, the physical aspects of, of athletics and not the mental aspects. But I, again, we're early on, we're in this pursuit and, and, you know, all trains are heading in a direction to better educate all of ourselves. And that's the NGBs, that's the coaches, that's the athletes, that's the fans, to this human problem that most of us encounter at some level. So, you know, again, I'm optimistic and I, and I think the more conversations that we can have about it, the more authentic that people can be, the more that we're accepting of those who are struggling and be, you know, offer help and, and be a resource that we can attack this and, and, and we, can, we can create a better and happier world for people. Here, here. Hey, man, I want to let you get going. I really appreciate you putting this film together and I'm excited for people to see it. It's been great to connect. It's a hell of a life you're stringing together here. Looking forward to seeing what in the world you've got in store next for us. Congratulations. Not so much on any particular victory, but like, I think you're doing this life pretty well and we're all real happy to see it and follow along. Well, thanks, man. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for highlighting the topic and spending some time on it. And I'm really excited for people to watch The Way to Gold. And, you know, like I said, hopefully it will help some people. It's been a pleasure. It's great to meet you and uh, hope to talk again down the road. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Jeremy for the conversation. And be sure to go watch The Weight of Gold on HBO. I also want to say thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And remember that you can catch more of our podcast conversations this week over on our other podcasts, including Off the Couch, Bikes and Big Ideas, and Gear 30. And you can find all of those other podcasts on our website or wherever you download your podcasts. 
And then, of course, we will be back here on the Blister Podcast next Monday. Okay, take care, everybody, and talk to you soon.